we've been in this series on the book of Ephesians, and thus far, we have talked about how God sees us. Really, from the vantage point of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 1, it's really about God's posture towards us. In the first week, we talked about God is the subject of the verbs. He has chosen. He has adopted. He has saved. He has redeemed. God has done all of this beautiful stuff. And I think it's helpful in light of how God sees us to ask ourselves and to, to begin to inspect how we see God, to locate ourselves kind of on this spectrum. Now, I'm going to offer you a framework today, that, and frameworks as they go can be really helpful in kind of putting yourself as a, as a plotting mark on a point, or you can be like, none of these apply to me. This is not where I fall. And so hopefully this framing kind of gives you a little bit of clarity but I think there's some common ways that we tend to see God. Now, the first way, it's the atheist agnostic way, right? Like, it's actually a fairly logical conclusion. I don't know if there's a God, or I look around, I say, there is no God. And this is a very common conclusion. You know, the Carl Sagan, like, we are on a blue dot floating through this giant cosmos, like, in the universe, like, how really are we going to say that there's this God who's made everything? And, you know, the, the Christian claim even that there is a God that's personally invested in each individual person that's ever been. Like, that's a radical, radical claim, right? Now, Psalm 8 even reflects on the, the radicalness of this claim, saying, When I consider the works of your hands and your creation, what is humanity that you are mindful of them? It is a radical claim. But in the scope of the scriptures, that largeness does not break down into something where we are a faceless mass, but perhaps you're in here today and you're like, I'm not sure if there's a God. I don't know if there is one. Sociologist Christian Smith, in surveying kind of the cultural defaults that we all live with in America, described the American default position as it pertains to their view of God as the moral therapeutic deist. So a deist is somebody who believes there's probably a God, but again, like that God is probably not concerned with your individual life. And the moral therapeutic part basically says, if you're a good person, then whatever happens, it's all going to work out for you. Christian Smith describes the moral therapeutic deist. It, it, it's a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good and moral person. And again, for many people... They sort of keep any idea of a God at arm's length, but they also develop this narrative in their head that says, like, if I am a good person, like, no matter, even if I get to know if there's a God or not, if I, if I really wrestle with that question, I'll be okay. Now, there is another a sociologist and theologian, local here, uh, it, her name is Kinda Creasy Dean, and she writes about the Christian moral therapeutic deist. Now, as it often goes, Christians, we live in American culture. And so we often imbibe American culture without really knowing it. We become like the world around us without really introspecting and investigating that. And she looked at the kind of faith that was being developed in youth ministries around the country. And she concluded that really Christians have just put some Christian language on that idea of moral therapeutic deism. She writes, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. 
Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. Now, if you spend any time in church, you know that last bit is like mostly true. <laughs> Most people are pretty nice. <laughs> but the Christian moral therapeutic deists, like we're, we just live like the rest of the world, that maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. We live with the same kind of approach to life. Like when stuff happens to us, we have the same sort of anxious responses because we don't see ourselves as held in the hands of a careful and loving shepherd. It's the same thing. And often for us, this is what I see as a pastor is so prevalent in our culture. We respond the same ways. We just put a Jesus label on it. And Christian as an adjective is fairly suspect. Then the last one, there is the sincere self-righteous. This is a person who kind of drills down deeper into the moral therapeutic deist idea person who by their right beliefs or their actions is trying to build a resume that they can present to God. Look at all the right things that I believed. Look at all that I've done for the poor. Look at who I voted for. It's all about presenting a resume to God. It is a way of living that Jesus warned us against that has all the trappings and labels of being spiritual but without any of the presence or the power of the God that it invokes. And all of these ways are self-referential. They start with us. You know, as we talked about, Ephesians doesn't start with us. Ephesians starts with what Jesus has done. He's trying to invite us into this story. But so often our defaults start with us. And the scriptures are insistent throughout that a way of living that is self-referential, that is self-created is no way of living at all. Because we can't make a life for ourselves. None of us chose to be here. You showed up on the scene into a story that long preceded you. And either we receive life as a gift as defined by God, or we live in the delusion and despair of living in our own strength. And throughout his earthly life, Jesus encounters characters who fit every piece of this spectrum, whether it's Pilate, who at Jesus' crucifixion trial asked Jesus dismissively, what is truth? You know, he's basically saying to Jesus in that moment, he's saying, you know, I, I've got all the power here. It's kind of the, the forerunner to Nietzsche. Like, power is truth. Might is right. If there's a God, like kind of looks like I have the power of that God. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler who thinks that he can pick and choose the commandments that he follows. You know, he's done everything right, except Jesus has this one thing, sell all you have and give it to the poor. The Pharisees who develop their own code of righteousness. The Sadducees who see no eternal significance in their earthly decisions. In all of these interactions, Jesus confronts the assumptions, the working defaults, not because Jesus wants to be confrontational. Jesus didn't need Twitter, but because Jesus is the light, and when the light shines in the darkness, it reveals and it exposes. But what we find is that Jesus, as the light shining in the darkness, is not exposing us to embarrass us, to leave us in a place where we understand ourselves as lesser than we have maybe previously believed. What we find is that when the light shines in the darkness, it is an invitation to come out of the darkness and into the light. And this is where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2. As we turn to a text that embodies this kind of illumination and confrontation, Paul starts out 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Welcome to church. Now, it seems a bit harsh, right? But Paul is saying that this is the fact of our lives without Christ. Here in the context of Ephesians chapter 2, as he starts this this section, Paul is referencing you all. And this you all in Ephesians chapter 2 are the Gentile Christians that Paul is talking to. But he will, in the next verse, include all people as he involves his own Jewish heritage and say, we also. And say, all of us, this is our position and posture outside of a life with Jesus. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. This past tense is really important here throughout this text. Paul is talking to people who have received the good news of Jesus. In, in Ephesians 1 verse 13, says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and you received the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you've been marked. You've been marked as not being marked by the culture and the spirit of this age, but by, by being a part of a new creation, a new culture. And Paul says, You were dead in your sins before in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, from this passage comes the ancient church's three great enemies of the soul. The flesh, our sinful desires, the world, and the devil. Paul is describing the various and concerted ways that sin manifests in our lives. Now, theologian Simon Chan has helpfully kind of broken these down into very helpful tidbits. First, the flesh, the sin within us, the sin that we are prone to, the sin that besets us. Patrick McCormick describes this fleshly sin. He says it's a spiral in which the individual actions and habits of persons are expressions of a viral cancer within them. A cancer which is then communicated not only from person to person, but from generation to generation, sustained by the ongoing cooperation of various members and groups in ever-deepening and hardening against the will and salvific love of God. And what we see over and over again, if you read Christian biographies of people who have done amazing things for God, often it starts with a realization of their own sinfulness. It is a turning away from the world. It is an acknowledgement that we have participated in the ways of death. And again, I think we have, because we're so prone to moral therapeutic deism, and we have this, this resistance to even just admitting, like, we are at fault sometimes, that we have flaws. And what we see is that Jesus, in revealing this to us, is inviting us. Simon Chan says, this is why Paul often includes, like if you read Paul's letters, there's often these lists of sins that sort of build on one another. And he says, Paul's not trying to say, like, look how terrible everything is. He's just trying to say, you probably have to locate yourself in this story at some point. Like, maybe you're not particularly lustful, but perhaps you're greedy. Or maybe you gossip about your neighbor. Or maybe you harbor racist tendencies in your heart. So Paul is weaving these things together, not to say, like, oh, look how broken everything is, but perhaps locate yourself in the story. 
the story starts with God, as we said last week. And, and really, this is so important, and I want to say this. Like, I'm actually going to linger on our participation in kind of the brokenness in Ephesians chapter 2 longer than Paul does, which is really important because Paul is not saying these things as a way of sort of like beating us over the head with like, I have to show you how terrible you are before you can see how good God is. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is describing our life outside of the life-giving love of Jesus Christ. Augustine described, as our very wills become turned in upon themselves. Now, perhaps you've had this experience. Uh, I certainly have in my life, where people that love me dearly have confronted me with the way that they were experiencing me. You know, and, and at the heart, at the root of that, often was my own selfishness. And them, in confronting my selfishness, was not trying to condemn me. They were trying to say, I love you, and I want you to turn out away from your selfishness again. Turn towards me. Turn towards others. This is what's going on here. Paul is trying to remind us of what we were in order to show us the beauty and the mercy of Jesus. And there's also one important caveat I want to offer here from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that all of us are deserving of wrath. Now again, our, our, our context, our sort of biblical expectation, that's, that's a difficult one for our culture. The NIV translates this one, all of us are children of wrath. Now many, of, many people have interpreted this passage and they've focused on this section as if, it, as if it's describing like some sort of ontological truth about us. That when we are born, that we have this, like, we are deserving of God's wrath until we respond to the gospel. That's not what Paul's doing here. Like, theologians have even concluded that babies who, who haven't been able to respond to the gospel are languishing in some sort of eternal limbo or even hell. That is not what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is not writing about our ontological status before God. He's saying that we have all participated in the ways of the world, the ways of wrath. He's trying to say this is locating us within the story. And so Paul is not speculating here about original sin. And even Augustine, who was kind of the first person to begin tracing some of these roots, he didn't go as far as many who follow him go. And so I, I just want to, you know, kind of make that plain because I think sometimes we can begin to distance ourselves from God with philosophy. As we sort of say, well, oh, I don't like that. So let's think about that. What Paul is trying to do is exactly the opposite. He's trying to involve us in this story, even the part of the story that we would rather not be a part of. And so I think it's an important caveat. The point of Ephesians 2 verse 3 is in saying that we are all deserving of wrath is to personally implicate ourselves. The Joseph, the, the Joseph Conrad, the heart of darkness, runs through each one of us. And Paul, in describing the desires and thoughts of our flesh, is describing our will as distorted. Again, when we're turned in upon ourselves, we're not turned out towards God, not turned out towards others. And the trick is, I think for Christians, and this is the thing we struggle with, the trick is not to rid ourselves of all desire. Like Buddhist teaching teaches you to empty yourselves of desire. The Stoics would try to say you have to empty yourself of emotion. That's not the way of Jesus. What Jesus is trying to bring about in us by his grace and mercy, he's trying to redeem our desires, trying to show us the true source and the true fulfillment of those desires. And it's such an important caveat 
Because it would almost be easier if we could just say, okay, I just want to get rid of all this. But God has wired us and made us in such a way that to follow him, to bear witness to who he is, is to have our desires not done away with, but redeemed. Romans 6 talks about you used to use your body, your life, your will, your soul as a means of serving the slavery of sin, but no longer. You have been liberated. You've been liberated by Christ's mercy. You are now set free. And what we find that freedom, the, the, the freedom that Jesus brings, frees us to be ourselves. Our flesh, as Paul describes it here, one of the enemies of the soul, is our will in slavery to sin. In that same passage in Romans 6, Paul describes sin not just as something we do, it's a power. It's something that holds us captive. It is something that we cannot extract ourselves from our own, but thanks be to God, there is a Savior who has come for us to redeem us from this body of death, to redeem our lives, to turn our flesh that we, by our defaults, would serve ourselves. We would love ourselves with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says, I have liberated you to turn that towards God and to bless others through the life-giving relationship that I've invited you into, the relationship being my daughters and my sons. In the next verse, Paul will combine these two, these next two enemies of the soul, the world and the devil, the world being the sin that's around us, the devil being the sin that's beyond us. Paul describes the ways of this world, the kingdom of the air. And in this text, he combines these two enemies of the soul, the world and the devil. And Paul is making the argument that the structures of our world are in command of the forces of darkness. Now, I don't know if you've been watching, you know, kind of the, the, the national discourse over the last several weaks. It started uh, almost two weeks ago with the leaked report that Roe versus Wade would likely be overturned at the national level, which would then kick the decision back to the individual state level. And I sort of tracked that discussion and just saw how people responded to that. And then there was a, a baby formula shortage that emerged. Now, in my house, we had to use formula pretty frequently. So I was, I was thinking, and I was like, man, what a, what a terrible disaster. What a hard thing that so many people are going through. And then last night, I got online after my kind of phone Sabbath for the day to see what seems to be the most routine Thing that happens in our country. Several people were shot. But this one, all early indications are that a white supremacist walked into a predominantly black grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo and shot and killed 10 people, injuring one. And Paul's describing the kingdom of the air, the ways of this world, these enemies of the soul. And friends, I think we see what Paul will later call powers and principalities operating in plain view. They go by different names, but they have all of the same tactics. And as I watch how Christians respond, and I, as I pray about who are we supposed to be in the face of these kinds of events, Ephesians gives us the response. It gives us the tool. We are not called to fight with the weapons and the warfare of this world. And so often what I hear from 
Christians that I love and respect are just the talking points of either right or left being regurgitated. And when it comes to something like Roe, like I understand that, that abortion is such a complex, complex issue. There are so many intersections. There are so many things I can't even understand as a man. There's so many things, but I also don't want to minimize our imaginations that we can be maximalists for life. The early church was known in a Roman culture that would often expose babies, especially young girls, because they were unwanted, leave them outside to die in the cold. The early church was known for going and picking those children up. We can be maximalists for life and still acknowledge in the same breath the complexity that often these things entail in our culture. And, and, and you see this in the baby formula thing. So many people are responding like, oh, well, we'll just value f- certain lives over others. That, you know, we'll make sure the, the American children get the formula first and the immigrants, you know, whatever happens to them, whatever. And again, to be a Christian is to be thoroughly and holistically pro-life. That so often the people that have claimed a pro-life label have been pro-birth, but whatever happens to that child after they're born, whether they're consigned to third world countries that are in our very zip code, whatever, the things that make for actual thriving like food and security and safety and purpose and meaning, we wash our hands of those things. And I want to say to us, church, we cannot buy wholesale into the agenda. Neither party that is presented to us in America is holistically pro-life. They're just not. But that is not some invitation to sit back in the middle and be like, I can point holes in both sides. Justice requires action. Justice requires that we step into courageous and hard places and make a decision. I want to say this about the last thing. Part of that a white supremacist with all, all early indications, and I think sometimes we respond to this stuff so quickly that the facts kind of trickle out, but all early indications is that this, this man had a manifesto that he was very, very deliberate in what he did. And I want to say, and I will say it to my dying breath, white supremacy is evil. It has no place in the church, and we, as people in this room, are a sign that there is a different way by our love for one another. Jesus said we would be known by these things. And so we will require courage to stand against these powers and principalities. Paul says our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're not people. They are demonic forces that oftentimes inhabit the structures of our world. And so I I just want to call you to say that there are enemies that are waging war against our very souls. There are big forces at work and we have to have a life with God that enables us to live in light of these things. We have to have a life together that bears witness to the world that there is something beyond right or left. There is something beyond picking and choosing these different wholesale categories that are illogical and insane and saying to the people, Jesus is our Messiah and our King. His kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom is near and it is here and it is now. Cornelius Plantinga in describing sin and the way that it often weaves its way into corporate cultures, he says, sin acquires the powerful and elusive form of a spirit. And this is what Paul is talking about, the spirit of the age. 
the spirit of an age or a company or a nation or political movement. Sin burrows into the bowels of institutions and traditions, making a home there and taking them over. The new structure is formed by the takeover. It's likely to display some combination of perversion, formlessness, or excessive rigidity. Law, for example, may be bent to the end uh, to end the freedom of selected pariah groups. Whole companies may dissolve in an intertwined deceit and neglect. Whole nations may join in lockstep with brutal dictators. But Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That just as he has been seated at the right hand of the Father, we, because we are in Christ, mysteriously but no less true, we have been seated with him. That the Jesus who overcame the world, who defeated these powers and principalities, so as Colossians 2, verse 14 says, that he nailed them to the cross, we now reside with this as our inheritance, with this as our posture. Right here and right now, we have been given everything we need to stand against these enemies of the soul. And friends, that is good news. It is good news so often for the shame that weaves its way into our hearts because of our own sins. It is good news for the bigger narrative that we can't combat on our own, but we're called to live as a faithful and patient and courageous witness against. And as I said, I've lingered on the brokenness much longer than Paul does. Paul says, this is what you were, but he's got something so much better and so much more beautiful coming. Verse 4, even though this was the case, even though we were dead in our transgressions, even though the world is arrayed against God's shalom and his goodness, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we've described the world the way it is. We've described our own defaults. But Jesus, but God, who is rich in mercy, is not waiting for you, not waiting for us to figure it out. God, who is rich in mercy, has come to us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, our Savior. God, who is rich in mercy, has taken the weight of that broken world upon his very shoulders and nailed them to the cross. You were dead. I was dead in my transgressions. But God, who is rich in mercy, has set us free. And I got to say, I thought about for a long time, I was like, there's got to be some better way to say that. And I didn't come up with anything. Like, that is really, really, really good. By grace, you have been saved. It's not some accumulation of something that you have achieved. It's not some uh, status that you have somehow accomplished. It's not that you have become holy enough for God to finally let you into the club. By grace, you have been saved. It is not your own doing, but it is the mercy and the grace of You are not what you were. 
if you are in Christ Jesus because of what he has done for you. And no matter your posture towards God, no matter the way you see God, how he started, if you plot yourself on any of those four points or somewhere else, that invitation is true for you right here and right now. Jesus is saying, all you have to do is receive it. And that is sometimes the absurdity of it. That it's something that you feel like, it has to be more. Like, there, there's got to be, like, fine print here. And Jesus is just saying, no, no, no. The fine print is it is finished. It is over. And that is written over every page of our hearts. God is rich in mercy. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says it twice just to make sure we get it. By grace, you have been saved. It is not our work, but it is the hands of the master artist. The Greek word for handiwork here is poema, where we get the English word, kind of the alliteration po poem. And I think it's in line with the extravagance of this passage to translate this passage as we are God's masterpiece. We are the masterwork of the master maker. God, the artist, has crafted us into new creation out of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's assessment of the way that we were living was that we were dead in our transgression. But God has made us alive in him through his rich mercy. And we have not only been given this incredible salvation, this incredible gift, we've been given an invitation a calling to partner with God. I love what Makoto Fujimura says. He says, the true and lasting understanding of the gospel is not whether we can recite our creeds or even are able to convey the information of the gospel to others. The ultimate understanding of the gospel is what we make and what we love with what we know. Or that deepest realm of knowledge that is garnered through our making. This is the deepest cultivation of the soil of our minds and our culture. And what he's saying is that in a world that is often dead, in a world that is often beholden to the powers of the flesh, the world, and the devil, what we make together through our life with God will be an invitation to all to come and drink. You know, as the scriptures say, let all who are thirsty come. Our life together will be a sign to the world that there is another way, that there is a Messiah who has redeemed and restored, and that invitation is available to all people. One of my favorite books is a book called The Supper of the Lamb. Robert Farrer Capone, really, he just writes about cooking a lamb, and he spends like pages talking about cutting an onion. Now, for some of you, that is endlessly pedantic, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so bored already. It's okay. For others of us, that is an immersion in beauty. And he writes, he says, we are not simply the users of creation. We are all of us called to be its offerers. The world will be lifted as it always was meant to be by our priestly love. We can, you see, take it with us. It will be precisely because we love this old Jerusalem of a world enough to bear it in our bones, that its textures will ascend when we rise. It will be because our eyes have relished the earth, that the colors of its countries will compel our hearts forever. The bread and pastry, the cheeses, the wines, and the songs go into the supper of the Lamb because we do. God, who is rich in mercy who in the ages to come will show us the extravagance of this mercy, who will never exhaust this mercy, 
has invited us to be co-creators, to be partners with him because we are recipients of this incredible gift of grace. It is not by your works that you are saved, but it is by our works together. The works that Jesus has called us to, that he prepared us in advance to do, that the world will know the beauty of our God. And it all starts at a table. On the night Jesus was arrested, on the night when he would fully enact this great mercy that we celebrate and we receive, he sat down to a meal with his friends and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. One of the most beautiful embodiments of this grace, one of the most mysterious ways that we encounter this God is at this table. As Jesus, in all the scandal of grace, meets us in the most ordinary things, bread, juice. As Jesus meets us with the confirmation in our senses, as we taste it on our lips, as we smell it with our noses, we feel it in our hands that we are not what we were because of his great love for us. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite everybody to the table because we practice what's called an open table here, which means there's nothing you did or have to do to come and receive because there's nothing Jesus requires of us to receive his grace. And as you come, I'm going to offer a couple of prayers just for you to hold on to. And I want to invite you too to hold on to the elements. We'll take them together. As a sign that we are a people, a new creation, a redempted people made new by this mercy. Let us pray. I invite the community service to come up while I pray. Jesus, God, I speak to those who are enslaved by their flesh. God, who know their, their, their addictions, God, who, who know their shame, Lord. God, I pray for the Holy Spirit to come and just to speak the beauty of your freedom. God, that your liberating love, God, has made us new in order that we can turn to you and that it all starts with turning to you. God, it doesn't start with our discipline or our ability to manage what we think is breaking us, God, but it turns out it just starts with being broken before you. And so, God, I pray for freedom to break forth in this room, God, to spring forth. God, I pray that through confession that, yes, we were dead, but because of your mercy, there is a greater love, a love greater than our sin, a love greater than our shame, a love greater than death that is at work in us. God, and I pray for those of us who are overwhelmed by the workings of the devil in the world, Lord, by workings of evil, God, that we would see that there is a true story that is being written in the midst of the headlines, God, in the midst of the the brokenness of our world, God, there are faithful people gathered together, living out a better way, a different story. God, would you weave that together in us? Would you make that true in our love for one another? God, that by your spirit, by the power 
of your love, God. Give us courage to be witnesses. Costly grace, Lord. We love you, Lord Jesus. We come to this table in the scandal of your grace. We pray all these things in your beautiful name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.